the sovereignty of God over the intellect of man. One and God indeed, having winked at the times of this ignorance, now declareth unto men, that all should everywhere dependence. Because he hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in equity, by the man whom he hath appointed, giving faith to all, by raising him from the dead. Act 17. 30, 31. These were the words of Saint Paul to the Athenians, when their philosophers called him a word sower and the publisher of new gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. This was his meaning, God, in times past, shut his eyes to the idolatries and polytheism of men. Those times are past now, for God has manifested himself to the world. He has made himself known, and has therefore commanded all men everywhere to do penance, that is, to believe in him, and to repent of their sins, under pain of eternal judgment, for he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man, whom he hath appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead, and for this end he has given faith, that is, a witness and an illumination to believe his word by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this declaration the Apostle distinctly asserts the sovereignty of God as the Creator, and as the judge of all mankind, his sovereignty over man both in body and soul, over the intellect in all its faculties, over the will in all its powers. As Maker and Lord, God has dominion and sovereignty over man, whom he made to his own image and likeness, and man being of a rational, a moral nature, is therefore a responsible being. Last year, the Council of the Vatican made a decree in these words, For as much as God is the Creator, and the Lord of all things, therefore man altogether depends upon him, and every created intellect is subject to the uncreated truth, and owes to it a perfect obedience both of reason and over the intellect of man, of will. Attached to that decree are these two canons, if any man shall say, that the reason of man is so independent of God that God cannot command faith, let him be anathema. And again, if any man shall say, that the act of faith in man is not free, let him be anathema. And this enunciates the subject of which I purpose to speak, the sovereignty of God over the intellect, that is, the rights of God over the rational creatures he has made. He requires of them a perfect obedience of their rational and moral nature, and holds them responsible to render that obedience. The way in which God requires the obedience of the rational nature of man is by faith. Faith is belief in truth, but not of all truth, for of truth there are two distinct kinds. There is one kind which is necessary, and therefore compels the assent of the intellect. For instance, that things which are equal to the same, are equal to one another, the two parallel lines can never intersecondst, that the whole is greater than the part, that the three angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles, and the like. These are necessary truths, which the intellect of man is constrained by first constitution on Catholic faith, chap. 3. An intrinsic law of its nature to a center. In these truths, therefore, there is knowledge, but not faith. There is about them no obscurity, and no intervention of the divine authority but all moral truths, that is, all those truths which relate to the world unseen, to the nature of God, to the moral duty of man, to his future destiny, all these are truths which are not intrinsically necessary. They depend upon the will of God, 
and upon the constitution and order of his revelation. They are therefore believed upon the authority of God, who has revealed them. The authority of God intervenes to require of us the submission of our intellect and of our will to the revelation he has made. It is thus, then, that God exercises his sovereignty in requiring faith. He commands faith under the penalty of eternal death. The words of our divine Lord expressly declare this law. He that believeth, and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. 2. That is, the voluntary act of faith is taken as the test of obedience, and according to the obedience or disobedience of the rational nature will the judgment be hereafter. 2. St. Mark 16. 16. We are confidently told in these days that faith is a weakness and a blindness, that it is unworthy of man, that it is servility and degradation, and I know not what besides. I will affirm, then, that faith is the most perfect act of tfre human reason, that the most reasonable act of man is to believe in the uncreated reason of God, that the highest act of an intellectual nature, next only to the eternal contemplation of the uncreated truth hereafter, is to believe that uncreated truth now, and this is what I shall endeavor to draw out. 1. First, God exercises his sovereignty over the human intellect, even by the lights of nature. There is in the natural world a manifestation of God which lays all men under the obligation of knowing him. They who, with the lights of nature before them, remain in ignorance of God, are not only intellectually in error, they are also morally in error, and they are responsible for that moral error. Not to know God is sin. The Apostle says to the Romans, the invisible things of him, that is, of God, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power also and divinity, so that they are inexcusable. Because that, when they had known God, they have not glorified him as God, nor gave thanks, but became vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. For, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of a corruptible man. 3. Here, then, is an express declaration that the lights of nature are sufficient to prove to us the existence of God, his power, his divinity, and, therefore, his perfections, so that they are inexcusable who do not know God, and, therefore, do not believe Arid make an act of faith in him, and of submission to his sovereignty, as their maker and lord. Again, the apostle says, when the Gentiles, who have not the law, do by nature those things that are of the law, these, having not the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness to them, and their thoughts within themselves accusing them, or else defending them. For that is, there is in every man a moral sense, or instinct, or judgment, or testimony to right and wrong, which rebukes him when he does wrong, which sustains him when he does right. There is therefore an inward light, whereby the human reason may perceive the moral law of God, and if so, then every man has within him a testimony to know that he has an intellectual and moral nature, and if he has an intellectual and moral nature, he has a soul, that is, the image of God, within him, and that image has an immortality. They, then, who, amidst the lights of nature, 
do not know God, or the distinctions of right and wrong, or that they have a soul which is immortal and responsible, are guilty for that ignorance. To be ignorant of these things is sin, because such ignorance is vincible. The lights of nature are sufficient to prove these things, and they who are ignorant of them are willingly ignorant of them, that is, ignorant through their own will, and therefore culpable before God, and for that culpable ignorance will have to give account at the last day. 2. But, seconsently, there is another world by which God has revealed himself. The lights of the natural creation on all sides testify to the truths of which I have already spoken, but there is a supernatural world at this moment round about us, against which the disputers of this world rail, as the philosophers at Athens. They who preach of this supernatural world are, word sowers, babblers, publishers of new gods. Nevertheless, there exists in the midst of mankind a kingdom, present, visible, and audible, manifesting itself with sufficient evidence, through which God demands the submission of faith, through which he the manifests his sovereignty over the intellect of man. That kingdom has about it certain marks, properties, and prerogatives, which no human institution, kingdom, or empire ever possessed. For instance, its indefectible existence. The history of mankind is the history of successive dynasties. Like shadows they have come and passed away, they have each one contained the principle of its own dissolution. Not one of them was intrinsically changeless and incorruptible. The Church of Jesus Christ, from its foundation to this hour, continues incorruptible in itself. The worldly accidents around it are human and cleave to it like the dust to our feet. As the light of heaven is changeless, incorruptible, unsoiled in its purity, though it looks upon all the corruptions of the earth, so is the church of God in the world, and as the presence of our divine Lord in the blessed sacrament abides in its immutable sanctity in the midst of the sins of men, so the church of Jesus Christ abides incorruptibly the same, the sins and corruptions of those who visibly belong to it notwithstanding. It also has an indissoluble unity, and an immutability in the law of morals and in the doctrines of the faith, which it has taught from the beginning, and now at this time teaches in every place. If I affirm that the faith has never changed, men may say, If you speak of pastime, how can you prove itf I affirm therefore that the faith is the same now in all the world. This is a fact of the present, and may be easily tested. Now this changeless identity of one truth in all places at this time is the countersign of the immutable perpetuity of the same truth in all times. Things which spring from one law have one type. Corruption is change, and breeds diversity. Identity points to a changeless principle which is above the order of nature. Now these are phenomena manifesting a supernatural kingdom in this natural world. The reason of man, if it be consistent, can ascribe the existence of that fact to none but the divine creator. If man had made it, man might rid himself of it. If man had founded it, he might destroy it. If man had set it up, he might sweep it off the face of the earth, but man has striven to sweep it away, and cannot, any more than he can sweep away the mountains which God has rooted in the earth. God perpetually defies man by the existence of his church. He manifests his sovereignty over the reason of man by this witness, 
which man can neither deny nor explain away. He can in no way account for its existence and changeless identity if he will not account for it by the only solution which is true. God shows his sovereignty by baffling the reason and will of men, which cannot rid the world of the presence of God, manifested in the supernatural order of his power. The mere lights of nature, then, for I am thus far treating the question as a matter of human reason, of human history, these testify, both in the natural and in what I will call the Christian world, to the existence of God's sovereignty. But this is not all. The Christian world which testifies to the sovereignty of God, testifies to the coming of the Son of God in the flesh, that is, to the nation. It testifies to the perpetual presence J.F. God the Holy Ghost. As a fact of history, it is certain that it has spoken and still speaks to mankind with a voice which never ceases, and the world tells us that its pretensions never change, that is to say, it teaches always the same things, and claims for that which it teaches a divine authority. It calls on men to submit their intellect to its divine voice. It claims, in virtue of God's authority over his creatures, that we should render to him that worship of the reason, that I reasonable service slash which the apostle declares to be the true sacrifice of man to God. When St. Paul preached to the Athenians, so long as they believed him only to be a disputer like themselves, and that his teaching was based only on human philosophy, they called him a word sower. But in the day when they knew that he was a teacher sent from God, that he had divine assistance in what he taught, that the message he uttered was a divine message, that the authority by which he spoke was the authority of God, from that moment they received all he said as coming from a fountain of divine certainty. They believed, that is, they offered the obedience of faith to what he said. They knew that, in hearing him, they heard the word of God, that what he delivered, he delivered not from himself, but from the master that sent him. So is it now with the church in the world. The sovereignty which God claims over our intellect is the obedience of faith rendered to the divine voice of his church. We can stand in relation to God and his truth only in one of two ways. We are either the critics who examine, test, and choose, who accept or reject for ourselves by our own lights and our own judgment, or we are the disciples who sit at the feet of a divine teacher, receiving by faith with the simple adhesion of our whole nature, intellectual and moral, that which he teaches. We owe him the submission of our intellect, because we know that all revealed truth comes from the uncreated intelligence of God. The highest act of the reason of man is to submit itself and to be conformed to the intelligence of God. We owe to him the submission of our reason, because the uncreated truth is the original of our intelligence, and will be the law of our judgment hereafter. We owe him also the love of our hearts, because that manifestation of the truth of God is the manifestation also of his grace and his love. What has been said may, I think, suffice to show that the obedience of faith is not servile, nor degrading, nor irrational, nor unworthy of an intellectual being. Nay, I shall show hereafter, that the argument turns the other way as may readily be seen by a moment's consideration of the effects of this submission of faith to a divine teacher. 3. The first and immediate effect is the illumination of the reason. The reason is pervaded by a light which, without faith, it could not possess. 
and the intellect is dignified by that illumination. Yow, then, can it be degraded? What is the illumination which we receive by faith? The Apostle says, Asterisk every best gift and every perfect gift is if from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change, nor shadow of vicissitude for as much as he is the immutable one truth. It is, therefore, a participation of the light of God. Again, that was the true light, which enlighteneth every man that cometh into the world. The light of God is the dignity of the intellect of man. In what, then, does it consist? It may be said to consist in three things, first in the most pure and perfect knowledge mankind has ever heard of God, of his nature, personality, and perfections, of his wisdom, sanctity, purity, love, mercy, power, and also of his relations to us, as our Father, our Redeemer, our Sanctifier, secondly, in the most perfect knowledge of the nature of man, because God was manifested in our manhood, the original and the image were united in one person, and in the person of Jesus Christ the most perfect manifestation of the image of God in our manhood, glorified by the incarnation of the divine original, and that enveloped in the splendor of the eternal Son of God, was revealed to the world. In the vision of the Word made flesh, we see not only the humanity of the first Adam, but the elevation, perfection, and glory of our manhood in the second Adam, from whom we derive life and immortality, thirdly, in the most perfect morality, the most pure and most elevated, as, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Does there exist in the W.T. whole history of mankind, in St. John 1, 9, all the philosophies of man, anything to compare for moral perfection with the eight Beatitudes? Where will you find in all the teaching of man this one simple precept? All things, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you also to them. It where did you ever find the precept? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Where, except only in the mouth of Jesus Christ? Was it ever heard, single quote, Be ye therefore perfect, as also your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Ho maketh his son to rise upon the good and bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. 9 Here is a perfect morality, to which nothing, that ever came from the unaided intellect or will of man bears any comparison. Where in the morals of mankind can be found anything to compare with the two precepts of loving God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves? Where can be found anything to compare in generosity, in tenderness of love, in sacrifice of self, with the oblation of our Lord upon the cross one there is, then, an illumination given to us by the light of faith, which created intellect can possess from any other source. But once more, Saint Matt. 7. 12. 4. This illumination elevates the reason of man. It raises it to a state and order of dignity otherwise unattainable, and in so doing, it confirms even its natural perfection. First, the truths of the natural order are confirmed and made clear, and the divine certainty is added to them by the light of revelation. The existence of God, the law of right and wrong, the soul and its immortality, these truths of the natural order are confirmed both in clearness and certainty by the light of faith. Secondly, 
that are superadded to the truths of the natural order the truths of the supernatural order, for instance, the knowledge of God through the Incarnation, the knowledge of our relations to Him through the adoption of grace, of our brotherhood and consanguinity with Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, of the indwelling of God the Holy Ghost in the intellect and will of man, making man his temple, besides this, the presence of God, not only in nature, but in grace, and the pervading whole world and presenting ourselves. Saint Augustine, describing his condition before he believed, said, I sought thee everywhere and found thee not, for thou waste within me, and I was out of myself. I sought thee everywhere but in that place where thou waste to be found, in my own soul. We know by faith that the presence of God inhabits each one of us, that we are united to the unseen world and to the communion of the spirits of just men made perfect, and that the vision of God hereafter is our inheritance. These are supernatural truths added to the lights of the natural order. Surely the reason possessing them is elevated above both nature and itself. Saint John says, Behold what manner of charity the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be named, and should be the sons of God. Therefore, the world hath not known us because it hath not known him. We are now the sons of God, and it hath not yet appeared what we shall be. We know, that when he shall appear, we shall be like to him, because we shall see him as he is. Is it possible to conceive of any elevation greater than the consciousness that we are sons of God? But it is this that faith gives to the reason of man. 5. Lastly, faith makes the reason perfect. The reason itself, as a faculty or an intellectual power, is perfected by the action of faith upon it. Just as the hand by experience is strengthened and acquires skill, and is able to execute the most powerful or the finest operations, and as the ear may be attuned and cultivated to harmony, and the eye to an exquisite perfection of sight, so is it with the action of faith upon the intellectual faculties of the soul. Take, for example, the whole history of the Old Testament, and compare the intellectual condition of Israel with the intellectual condition of the Gentile world. No man has ever yet ventured to say that, as compared with the intellectual state of the chief philosophers of the Gentile world, the Hebrew patriarchs, prophets, and saints were not in intellectual stature, a head and shoulders above them. No man can fail to see that the very intellect of the Jewish race was elevated by the illumination of faith, and that personal character, domestic life, and the public commonwealth of Israel all bore the marks of an elevation derived from faith. Submission to the sovereignty of God was the cause of this elevation, and therefore of the dignity of Israel. Among the Gentile world, it is true that intellects such as those of Plato and Aristotle, to mention no others, the one the great example of natural theology or knowledge of divine things, the other the most perfect example of ethical or moral philosophy, exhibit a logical cultivation not to be found in the splendor and dignity of Isaiah's or Sheol, but if we compare with them the majesty and sublimity of the prophets, who will hesitate in saying that the moral dignity and grandeur of Isaiah's and Sheol far transcend them in moral elevation. But this I will further affirm, that wheresoever the belief in God was low, intellect was low, and that just in proportion as elevation and cultivation of intellect was attained by mankind, in that proportion they circumflex approached a purer knowledge of God and of morals.
Plato stands at the head of all the intellects of the ancient world for culture and lofty speculation. In him, I may say, the speculative intellect of the order of nature culminated, and in him, above all, we see a theism which for purity and truth approaches nearest to the theology of Israel. In like manner Aristotle, for subtlety and dialectical precision, stands alone among the intellects of antiquity, and in him we find the purest and truest morality the world without revelation has ever known. The ethics of Aristotle remain to this day as the basis on which the moral theology of Christendom reposes. It is a pure and accurate delineation of the morals of mankind known by the light of nature, and St. Thomas builds upon it as a sure foundation. The world therefore bears testimony to this, that in proportion as the intellect of man approaches the knowledge of God and of self, it is dignified, and its mental and moral faculties are strengthened and expanded towards their perfection. The same truth is still more manifest in the Christian world. The intellectual history of the modern world is to be found written in the history of Christianity. The intellectual powers of mankind are to be found in their highest perfection in Christendom. It is no objection whatsoever for men of the present day, who believe nothing and who profess to have rejected even the existence of God, to say, Look at our men of science, are they in intellectual dignity or power inferior to those whom you call your doctors if the answer is this, their intellectual dignity is derived from the culture of the Christian world. They would never be what they are, if they had not been nurtured and ripened upon that same mystical vine from which they have fallen. They retain after their fall the savour and the quality of the tree from which they fell. But can they reproduce it? Let them try, and how long will they transmit it? Those who have fallen from the knowledge of God and of his revelation have fallen from the tradition of intellectual culture. Asterisk if anyone abide not in me, he shall be cast forth as a branch, and shall wither. This is true, both spiritually and intellectually. The intellectual standard of skeptics and infidels has no perpetuity. They die out as individuals, and their few disciples are scattered. On the other hand, I would ask, is there in the history of mankind anything, for intellectual power, precision, amplitude, fertility, to be compared with St. Thomas Aquinas or Serres, to mention two only out of a multitude? The profound and pretentious ignorance of this day will no doubt think that these two examples belong to the Middle Ages, or that the latter was only emerging from those times of obscurity, but the man who so speaks cannot know the books on which he passes judgment. The intellectual system of the world, in its refinement and culture, will be found passing through the unbroken tradition of such minds, and the philosophers and men of science of this day, who tell us that we can know nothing with certainty but that which is within the reach of sense, have not dignified the human intellect, but have degraded it. They reject the intellectual system of the whole world, and the highest truths which it proclaims. The obedience of faith, therefore, which is due to the sovereignty of God, is the most reasonable act of an intellectual being, the most perfect act of which the human intellect in this state of mortality is capable. There remains after it nothing but the vision of the uncreated truth without a veil. Asterisk after the summer of St. Thomas there remains nothing but the light of glory. Is not an academical exaggeration, but a very truth. Faith, then, is the illumination, the elevation, 
and the perfection even, of the faculty of reason itself. Faith gives power to the human reason, by giving to it principles of certainty from which to start. As in the pure sciences the axioms and demonstrations give firmness, strength, solidity, and onward progress to the scientific intellect, so in the knowledge of God, and of man, and of morals, the revelation of God gives the first axioms and primary principles of divine certainty, which unfold, elevate, and strengthen even the reason itself. I said before that this argument turns the other way. If faith be the elevation, unbelief is the degradation of the human intellect, and that for two reasons. First, because it deprives it of the illumination of truth, and, secondly, because it paralyzes the intellectual faculties. It deprives it of the illumination of truth, it robs it at once of all the truths of revelation. All the lights of the supernatural order are alike extinguished, God and his kingdom, the communion of saints, and our relations to it, faith, hope, and charity, the church of God in the world, the mysteries of grace, everything resting on the supernatural order is darkened. Just as, if light were withdrawn from the world, sight would cease to be, for the eye in midnight can see nothing, so the deprivation of the human reason by unbelief leaves it in midnight. But it is not only the lights of the supernatural order that at once are clouded, the lights even of the natural order become dim. The intellect loses certainty and firmness of belief, even in those principles of the natural order to which the lights of nature testify. It is certain that deists lose much of the light of the knowledge of God when they reject revelation, because even nature ceases to testify as luminously, and to speak as articulately, of the existence of God, his eternal power and divinity, to those in whom the skeptical spirit is at work. Again, if they do not lose the knowledge of their own soul, and of its immortality, they begin to doubt about it. Day after day, we hear the confident talk of men who tell us that we have no evidence to believe in anything but the material mechanism, which we can trace by physiology, chemistry, or comparative anatomy, that beyond this we have no power to ascertain anything about the existence of the soul, or will, or life. They are men at this day, who consider themselves intellectual, openly denying the existence of the soul, and who, having denied the existence of the soul, deny the existence of right and wrong. They tell us that right and wrong, and the instincts, dictates, and rebukes of our conscience, are arbitrary associations of pleasure and pain connected with certain actions, by the conventional traditions in which we are brought up. If so, then there is no such thing as law, either human or divine, and if no such thing as law, then no such thing as sin or crime, and therefore no such thing as justice, and if there be no such thing as justice, there is no such thing as injustice, and if there be no such thing as intrinsic right, there is no such thing as intrinsic wrong, and if not, then we are in a world which has no more right, order, sweetness, or beauty, but we are turned back again into the inorganic state of creation, void and empty slash and darkness rests upon the face of the deep. But there is something more degrading than this. If I have not a soul, then am I like the cattle? Nay, more, if I have not a soul, I have no immortality, then, so far, I am as the beasts that perish. This gospel is preached to us by way of manifesting the dignity of the human reason.
choose for yourselves whether this be dignity or debasement. But unbelief is not only a privation of the lights of truth, it is a paralysis of the reason itself. For I would ask, what is skepticism or doubt? It is a partial denial of the truth or existence of things. A denial is a bold assertion that the thing is not true or does not exist. A doubt is halfway to a denial. And on what is it founded? It is founded on the supposed uncertainty of evidence, but this again is founded on the assertion that the senses are fallible, so that we cannot depend on them and that the faculties of the reason may also go astray, and that their interpretation of the senses cannot be trusted. And this philosophy is preached to us as the dignity of the human reason. To me it appears to be intellectual paralysis, tending to intellectual idiocy to tell me my senses do not report to me truly the existence and facts of the external world in a way that I can depend on, and to tell me that my reason cannot interpret them, and that I cannot know with a perfect certainty the internal facts of my own consciousness, is to shake my whole being and to reduce me first to a state of paralysis and afterwards to a state of idiocy, and yet this is the result of skeptical unbelief. In the face of this we are told that faith is degradation to the human intellect, and that unbelief is its dignity. I must now go no farther, and will add but one only word more. Last year, the Council of the Vatican made the decree which I have already recited. The Council of the Vatican has been a sign, against which the contradiction of the whole world has been directed. The reason is evident. In past times, Every council of the church had to deal with some one particular heresy, by which some one specific doctrine of the faith had been denied. The council of the Vatican has had to deal with the whole principle of unbelief. It is not one doctrine ex only of Christianity that is at stake now, but the whole of Christianity, the whole revelation of God, the whole principle of faith. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. The council of the Vatican, knowing this full well, made and promulgated, before the tumults of the world rendered necessary the suspension of its labors, two constitutions which, if it never had another word, will be inscribed in the history of the church, aye, and upon the intellect of the world too, as a luminous record of divine truth that can never be effaced. The first constitution of Catholic faith may be called the philosophy of faith in the lights of nature and the order of nature in the grounds and the preambles upon which divine faith rests, as the most perfect and most reasonable act of man. The second constitution is the declaration of the rule of faith, or the authority upon which faith reposes. This doctrinal authority was defined to be the infallibility of the Roman pontiff, the infallibility of the church has been at all times, and by all Catholics, believed as a doctrine of divine revelation. Till controversy had clouded truth, no one doubted that the infallibility of the church contains also the infallibility of the head, as the reasonableness of man resides eminently in the head which governs the body. It had become evident that they who are tempted to deny the infallibility of the head of the church were covertly, and I believe many unconsciously, denying the divine guidance of the whole church. The Council of the Vatican, then, with the fearless liberty of truth which belongs to the kingdom of God, and comes from God alone, promulgated these most opportune and necessary constitutions of faith. It has declared, in the midst of an unbelieving age, that faith is due to God, because he is sovereign, 
and because as sovereign he commands it, and that to know what we are to believe, he has instituted upon earth a witness, which is itself a sufficient evidence of its own divine commission, that is, his visible church, a witness that may be seen as the representative of his incarnation, a witness that may be heard, because the voice of that church speaks to the world, and is his voice, the council of the Vatican, therefore, calls to us all, as St. Paul called to the Corinthians, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in loftiness of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of Jesus Christ. For I judged not myself to know anything among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my teaching was not in the persuasive words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God. That your faith might not stand on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. 12. And to obtain the divine certainty, there is one simple condition, to believe in the divine teacher whom he has sent. 1. Core. 2. 1-5. Lecture 2. The Sovereignty of God over the Will of Man. Asterisk Behold, I come, in the head of the book it is written of me, that I should do thy will, zero God. Hebrews 10. 7. These words taken by the Apostle from the book of Psalms are the words of the Son of God, speaking in prophecy of his advent and his mission in the world. Circumflexed behold, I come, in the head of the book, that is, in the outset of prophecy, it is written of me. It was of this that God spoke in the beginning, when he foretold that the seed of the woman should crush the serpent's head. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world was for the fulfillment of the will of God. Throughout the Gospels we read from his own lips that his work on earth was to do his Father's will. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. My food is to do the will of him that sent me. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God was the recognition of the sovereignty of God over the will of man. Obedience to the divine will is the first law of the soul of man, and in this is his perfection, which is our next subject. Our last subject was the sovereignty of God over the intellect, and the sovereignty of God over the intellect is the means and condition to the sovereignty of God over the will, for God, being perfect intelligence, requires of no man an irrational obedience. He requires of all men an obedience according to the laws and perfections of the human reason, and to the laws and perfections of truth. It is a law of our nature, that we can will nothing that we have not first known. Our intellect must first know the object upon which we would set our will, or the will can make no act either of desire or aversion. The intellect, therefore, is the channel through which the sovereignty of God reaches the will of man. In proportion as we know God more perfectly, our will ought to be the more perfectly conformed to the will of God. The will in man is defined to be a rational desire, and it is made up of two things. There is in it the desire after good, and there is the reason guiding that desire, so that the will is, as philosophers call it, a rational appetite, but with this peculiar office and power, it can control the appetite, it has the power of originating our actions, and of controlling itself. Now the intellect of man has analogy to the eye. The eye, which is the organ of sight, is under the control of the will. We may fix the eye on any given object, or we may turn the eye away from it, or we may either look intently or languidly at it. 
All the day long we see a multitude of things without looking at them. The eye is filled with the light of day, and with the objects round about it, but the eye can be fixed for the time only upon one, and that one is the only object upon which we can be said to look. We see a multitude of objects, which perhaps we do not recognize at the time, nor remember a moment after. So it is with the intellect. It is controlled by the will, which can determine on what object it shall be fixed, and whether it shall look fixedly and steadfastly at truth, or whether it shall turn the intellect away from truth, or make it look at truth so cursorily and languidly as not to recognize it. Now this constitutes our personal responsibility in regard to truth. As I have said before the words of our Divine Lord, single quote he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be condemned, express the voluntariness of the active faith. Faith is a virtue and a grace of the Holy Spirit, but it is also an act of obedience on the part of man, and we are responsible for our unbelief, and shall be judged for it, because God has given a sufficient light and evidence, both for the truths of the natural and supernatural order. He will not require of any man to know any truth which is physically beyond his power to know, he will only require of man to answer for the truth which he knew, and that which he might have known. He will not require that which is impossible, for God never commands impossible things. He is a God of justice, and his justice is perfect equity. He wigeth the spirit, and he knows with divine precision what is possible and what is not possible to each one of us. He may require, indeed, that which is morally difficult because that which is only difficult is not impossible. We are responsible to know all truth tilde which is sufficiently proposed to us and all that by diligent search we may find, and therefore we shall be inexcusable at the last day if we do not see the lights of nature, which are so abundant inundating the world, and if we have not known the truths to which they testify, that is to say, the existence of God, His eternal power and divinity, His perfections, the distinction of right and wrong, the law of conscience, our own free will, the soul and its immortality, and therefore our responsibility to our Creator. These are truths of the natural order apart from and anterior to revelation. They are within our reach to know. All men, even those who are not only out of the Catholic Church, but most remote from it, are bound to know these truths. To those who are within the unity of the Catholic Church, there is not a doctrine of revelation which is not within their reach. God has given sufficient light and evidence for all who are within the unity of the Catholic Church to know all the truths of revelation. To those who are out of the unity of the Church, their probation depends on this whether their separation from that unity and the light contained therein be a conscious and voluntary act of their own. If so, then they are responsible. But if it be an inherited state of privation, as I have said before, like the condition of people robbed by the sin of forefathers, of their inheritance of perfect light, such as our own country, then many are not responsible. They will not be called to answer for light they have never known, and never could have known. By them the visible church has never been seen, the voice of the church has nev.dr been heard, and things that do not appear are as things that do not exist. They have never stood face to face with it as we do, the light of Catholic faith has never fallen upon them. 
They have been brought up repeating the baptismal creed, they believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. But between that article of creed and their conscience has intervened a colored medium, and a false object. They have believed themselves to be in the Catholic Church, because they have mistaken a system of human creation for the Church of Jesus Christ. The law of God, then, is this, that in proportion as we possess sufficient evidence to know the truth, he will require of us to give an account of that truth at the last day. We must give an account of what we have known, and what we have not known, and the reasons why we have not known that which we might have known. In this, therefore, consists the sovereignty of God over the will, and I wish you to bear in mind, that when I speak of faith as of the highest act of the human reason, and the most rational exercise of the human intellect, such faith is not a blind and obscure act of the superstitious and the credulous, who hide their heads in twilight. Faith is an act of the human reason, expanding itself towards God its maker, and receiving the noontide light of revelation with the fullest development of its intellectual powers. And in proportion as it receives the truth, and submits its created intelligence to the uncreated wisdom of God, it is elevated and made perfect. We will now go on to our next subject, namely, the sovereignty of God over the will. To make it as clear as I can, let us consider the relations in which the human will has hitherto stood, and will stand, to the sovereignty of God. 1. The first relation was when God made man, to his own image and likeness. That is, he imparted to him a spiritual nature. He gave him an intelligence and a will like his own. Man was the image or reflection of his maker. The will, as I have said, consists in this, it has the power of originating our own actions. The lower animals have a power of spontaneity in following their natural desires, such as for food and rest, but they have no will. Everything voluntary is spontaneous, but not everything which is spontaneous is voluntary. The lower animals, though they have this spontaneous power, have no will, because the will, as I said in the beginning, is a rational desire or appetite guided and elevated by the reason, and as the lower animals, though they have instincts, are irrational, that is, have no reason, they have no will. The will, then, is the power of originating rational actions, and those rational actions are the actions of a willing conformity with the reason, and of the reasoning conformity with the intelligence of God but we are wont also to speak of the freedom of the will. Now, everything that is free is voluntary, but not everything which is voluntary is free, because the blessed in heaven voluntarily love God and voluntarily worship Him, but they are not free not to love Him or not to worship Him. The very perfection of their nature necessitates their love and worship, and yet the will in its voluntary action is perfect. It is the most perfect and entire spontaneousness, elevated and guided by reason, and by the illumination of the whole soul of the blessed. There is therefore a kind of freedom or liberty which does not belong to the perfection of the will. When God made man in the beginning, he gave him a perfect liberty. H.D. was not constrained by any external authority which deprived him of his freedom, he was not necessitated, as the blessed are, by a final perfection. He had therefore these three kinds of liberty, First, he had the power either to do or not to do, to act or to refrain from acting, so constantly, he had a power, within the limits of good and justice, to do this or that act, 
he was not compelled to any specific acts of goodness or of justice, lastly, he had a power which the blessed would heaven have not of doing good and evil, but this power of doing good and evil is indeed a part of our liberty in our present state of probation and of imperfection, but it is not a part of the perfect liberty of the will. The use of the will is to do good, but the abuse of the will is to do evil. It is an abuse of the power of originating our actions if we act contrary to reason, contrary to justice, contrary to the will of God. In the beginning, God created man with this threefold liberty, to put him upon trial or probation, and yet there was no cause or need or excuse why I should offend and fall, for God constituted him in original justice. There never was a moment when the created will of the first man was not sanctified and sustained by the Holy Ghost when he had not the presence of abundant grace within him to sustain him in the full equilibrium of his liberty. There was, then, no necessity, nay, no reason whatsoever except the abuse of his freedom, why he should do evil. His whole soul was under the dominion of the divine knowledge and love and his heart was the throne of God reigning supreme within it. This, then, was the first relation of the will to the sovereignty of God. 2. The second relation was introduced by the fall of man, and see how it came about. The entrance of sin into the world was by the abuse of the will. Sin came through the intellect. The temptation was addressed to the reason, which, being perverted, perverted the will, but the will was free to listen or not. The temptation was addressed with an exquisite subtlety of malice. It began by a question, and that question began by the word asterisk why, which was then spoken for the first time. The tempter came and said, Why hath God commanded thee? This was a temptation to criticize the ways and to question the justice of God. Why hath God commanded you, that you shall not eat of every tree of paradise? If this awakened a questioning, perhaps a murmuring, spirit. The next step of the temptation was a contradiction. Ye shall not die the death. In this was insinuated a contradiction of the known truth. Thirdly, there was an insinuation of injustice against God. For God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. As if to say, God is jealous lest the creature of his hands should be equal to himself. Now, the first temptation came through the intellect, and as it passed through the thoughts it wrought upon the soul, it undermined the steadfastness of the will, it inflamed the passions, it made them impatient of restraint, and thereby it inclined the will to abuse its liberty and power. The abuse of its liberty and power was this, to do evil, to break the known law, to violate the commandment of God. In doing so, it acted irrationally, the will in doing evil, then lost its rational character. It was an abuse and debasement of its nature, and the will being debased by this irrational action, deprived of its supernatural perfection, forfeited the grace of the Spirit of God. It biased its own working, it warped its own nature. As a perfect machine, if it be rudely jarred, loses its perfect action, and all its operations are thrown out of gear, so with the soul of man, when by a willful abuse of his rational power he acted irrationally. In the moment when he rebelled against the sovereign will of God, his passions and affections, which before were in subjection and in perfect harmony and conformity to his will, 
obeying its dominion and government, rose up and rebelled against him. The passions were both disordered and inflamed, they were no longer within the range and control of reason. The affections, losing their reasonable character, became internal temptations, so that the words of the Prophet were verified in the first man, single quote the wicked are like the raging sea, which cannot rest, and the waves thereof cast up dirt and mire. The tumultuous passions and affections of the heart cast up desires and cravings which are irrational and destructive of the soul of man, just as one poisonous root will propagate and spread over a fertile garden and one spark of fire will kindle a boundless conflagration, so one perverse will, beginning in irrational disobedience, has multiplied itself throughout mankind, and the whole world is set on fire by its perversity. The human will, becoming carnal and irrational in the fall of our first parents, has been reproduced in all their children. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We inherit that nature as children of wrath. This, then, is the seconded relation of the will to the sovereignty of God, by the irrational abuse of its own freedom. 3. Then, thirdly, as man fell by irrational disobedience, he is redeemed by an obedience which is in perfect conformity to the intelligence and will of God. Saint Irinsur says, The obedience of Mary broke the chains forged by the disobedience of Eve. What Eve had bound by unbelief, Mary has unbound by faith. That is to say, the will fell by the unbelief of Eve, the first virgin, and was restored through the faith of Mary, the second virgin. The first Eve listened to the tempter, and fell, the second Eve listened to the angel, and believed. When the angel saluted her with, asterisk hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And revealed to her the mystery of the incarnation, her intelligence, overcome for a moment by the splendor of supernatural light, asked, how shall this I've done f6 but at once she made an act of perfect submission and of perfect faith. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. Here was a perfectly obedient will restored to mankind, a will reconstituted in, that state of perfect submission to the sovereignty, of God in which man was in the beginning. Of her was born one more perfect still, because he is the incarnate Son of God, in whom the words of prophecy were fulfilled, asterisk behold, I come, to do thy will, O God. The fulfillment of the will of God was the whole work of redemption. Obedience unto death was the restoration of mankind. When the Son of God took our humanity, he took a human soul, and in that soul a human intelligence and a human will, in all things like our own. But between the sacred humanity and ours there was this difference, the human will of Jesus had in it 110 rebellions. It had what we distinguish as a superior and an inferior will, that is, he had a reason and conscience like our own, but both were perfect. He had also affections and infirmities, and, as the theology of the Catholic Church says, not passions, for the word by tradition has an evil meaning, but asterisk pro-passions. That is, those affections of our humanity which are passions in us in him are perfections. Nevertheless, the superior and the inferior will of the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane were seen, not in conflict, but each exerting its proper and natural perfections.
the sensitive or inferior will shrink from the vision of sin, from the foresight of the death of the world, from the anticipation of the passion, from the agony which he then already suffered, from the divine foreknowledge of the anguish of that night, and of the desolation on Calvary. Human nature in him shrank from pain and death, just as we do, but the superior will stood steadfast. Knowing that it was for the glory of God, and the redemption of the world, that he should accept and drink the chalice of his passion, he said my father, if it is possible, let this chalice pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. There was no wavering of imperfection in that agony of our divine Lord. He being God, the will that was in him was deified. It was united to the perfections of the Son of God, it was sanctified by the presence of the Holy Ghost, it was constituted in the divine perfections of freedom and obedience, it could be used with the utmost liberty of human freedom, it could never be abused, because of his perfection both as God and as man. That which constituted the merit of our Lord's passion was this, though it was necessary, from his twofold perfection, human and divine, that he should love God, and obey him, and fulfill his will with perfection, it was not necessary that he should suffer the agony in the garden, nor the crucifixion upon Calvary, these things were freely chosen by him, out of love to mankind. Greater love than this no man hath, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was an act of the love of the Son of God to give himself for three and thirty years to mental sorrow, and to his agony on the cross, for our redemption. He freely chose that way of redemption, the way of bloodshedding, passion, humiliation, because it was a more profuse revelation of perfect love. This way of redemption was not required by any necessity, but freely ordained in the wisdom of God. 4. Fourthly, there is still another relation of the will to the sovereignty of God, and it is that in which we all stand now to him. We are not like the first Adam, in a state of original justice. We are not like Adam after the fall, in a state deprived of grace. We are not like the seconsoned Adam in his divine perfections, but we are regenerate members of the seconsoned Adam, and there is a perfection which comes by the Holy Ghost to all those who are united as members of the body of Christ. The will of their divine head pervades the will of those that are born again. You, in your baptism, passed from the state of nature to the state of grace. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 9 You have been born of water and of the St. John 3. 6. Holy Ghost and Christ Jesus is in you, unless perhaps you be reprobates. Your will is a regenerate will. It is the will of the Son of God. What Jesus had by nature, because he is the Son of God, consubstantial with the Father, you have by grace because by adoption you are made the sons of God. St. John writes, As many as received him, to them he gave power to be made the sons of God. The power has been given to you all, not to become equal and co-eternal with the incarnate Son of God, but to be sons of God by adoption. Again, St. Paul says, You have not received the spirit of bondage again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. For whosoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they have a regenerate will, elevated by faith, hope, and charity, 
raised by the sanctifying grace of God, to a union with God himself. The Apostle says, single quote, He who adheres to the Lord is one spirit, and they who are united by the Spirit of God dwelling in them, to our Divine Lord and Saviour, the head of the mystical body, partake of the sanctity and strength of his will. His will is transcribed into them, they become partakers of the loves and the hatreds of Jesus Christ. Together with him they love God and their neighbour, they hate sin and falsehood in all its forms. The will, according to the promise of God, becomes a law to itself. Asterisk this is the testament which I will make unto them after those days, saith the Lord, giving my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. 14 And the Apostle says, Asterisk the law is not made for the just man, but for the unjust and disobedient. 15 Is the seven notes of the octave are not to be perpetually learned by the skillful musician, and the twenty-four letters of the alphabet are left behind by the cultivated intellect, so the law of commandments is no longer necessary to those who have the law of God written by the Holy Ghost upon their hearts. They fulfill, indeed, the letter of the commandments, because that is the least thing they can do, but that which is required of them is more than this. Saint John says, Everyone that is born of God, doth not commit sin, for fourteen heb. 10. 16. 15. 1 Tim. 1. 9. His seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. 16. That is, there grows up a moral impossibility to commit willful sin. The love of God and our neighbor makes it morally impossible that we should abuse the freedom of our will by disobedience to God and injustice to our neighbor. The hatred of sin, falsehood, impurity, jealousy, malice, and the like, makes it morally impossible for the soul, renewed by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, to violate its own renewed nature by willingly doing these things. Therefore, the will becomes a law to itself, and it is so strengthened in the state of regeneration that the Apostle could say, less than I can do all things in him who strengthened me. When buffeted by the messenger of Satan, he thrice prayed to be delivered from temptation, but the answer of God to him was, My grace is sufficient for thee, for power is made perfect in infirmity. And he adds, Asterisk gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And again, Asterisk work your salvation with fear and trembling. And for what reason? For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to accomplish, 1 St. John 3. 9. 17 Phil. 4. 13. 18 2 Cor. 12. 9. According to his good will. The supremacy of the good will of God, holy, pure, just, and mighty, flows into the soul, and pervades the will of those who, being born again, are subject to the sovereignty of God by the free action and use of their own deliberate will. 5. Lastly, there is, as I have said before, a final relation of the will to God, and that is the state of the blessed, when there will be no more temptation without, no more conflict within. We shall then have passed from a state of warfare, and from the condition of wayfarers, into the eternal rest and peace, in the vision of God. The intellect, illuminated by the light of God, which I and the Holy Ghost himself, shall see him. The will, united with the eternal love of God by the Holy Ghost, who is the charity of God, 
will be eternally and indissolubly united to him in obedience and adoration of his perfect sovereignty, when God shall be all in all. This is the last and eternal perfection of the will. To draw from this one practical conclusion circumflex let us remember what is our probation now. It is to subject our will to the will of God. And 19 p.m. 1. 2. 12,13. How does God illuminate us to know what that sovereignty is? I have already said, by faith. I have said that our submission to him is the most rational and perfect act of our reason. Take, for example, the lights of nature, the existence of God, the distinctions of morality, the immortality of the soul. You would all hold, that any man who should refuse to submit his will to the sovereignty of God, revealing these things to us by the light of nature, would be guilty before him of pride and infidelity. And why, but because the evidence for them is sufficient? Let us go one step farther. Is there not sufficient evidence in the world, by the lights of Christendom and by the effulgence of the universal church, which is, like the lightning which cometh out of the east and shineth also to the west? Is not the testimony of the universal church throughout the world a sufficient light, or motive of credibility, to convince the intellect of man that that church is the church of God, and, therefore, that he founded it? Is not the worldwide testimony of the church sufficient to convince any reasonable intellect, that he who founded it was the Son of God incarnate, and that, according to the promise of the Son of God, the Holy Ghost descended upon that church and made it his dwelling place and the organ of his voice, in which he preserves the original revelation of God, and through which, as the organ of his voice, he makes that revelation known to the world? And if there be a sufficient light to know these things, is not the intellect bound to submit itself to the uncreated reason of God, by whom these things are revealed? And if so, is not the will, through the intellect, bound to submit itself to the light and sovereignty, which is thus made known? And if so, the voice of the church is the voice of God himself. He that heareth you, heareth me, and the authority of that voice is divine and the unity of truth is divine, and the duty of submitting to it is from God. This light of faith comes to us through the most rational action of the human intellect, and this act of faith is an act reasonable and free in all its parts. Faith is not a credulity, nor a superstition, but they who will not believe are truly rational and superstitious. They fall from perfect light into the twilight where half-truths are seen, as asterisk men like trees walking. 20 and Belleviog in them, 20 St. Mark 8. 24. The intellect is warped and narrowed. They who reject divine faith credulously believe in human opinions, which are both false and superstitious. What, then, is the whole of our life on earth but an education? Is not the sovereignty of God round about us? Are we not under its guidance, training, and discipline? Is it not training us up to dwell in our Father's house? Are not all the visitations and chastisements of our lot so many teachings of his divine hand? In joy and sorrow, prosperity and poverty, sickness or strength, are not all these distinctly divine agencies around us and upon us? Are they not the manifestations of the divine sovereignty over the course of our life? And they who recognize, by the light of faith, the sovereignty of God in all things, 
will recognize the sovereignty of God in the daily and hourly details of their own personal life, and in the changes of their lot. They will not chafe against his will when he chastises them, nor wear themselves out, nor break their hearts by contending with impossibilities, but, conforming their will to the sovereign will of God, and submitting gladly to it, they will be sustained and sanctified in their faith. And, further, there are two other ways in which the sovereignty of God works in us. The one is by the silent, second threat and sweet inspirations of His grace, by the lights that fall upon our intellect without our asking for them, and the love that is poured out in the divine superabundance of His generosity and tenderness. As He makes the sun to rise upon the evil and the good, so He sends down the lights of truth on the intellects of those who have not sought for Him and he pours out over their hearts the drops of consolation, of which the psalmist speaks when he says, less than thou hast prevented him with blessings of sweetness. 21 This is something which, in experience, you all will know, you will understand me, though I cannot put it in words. There have been in your lifetimes and seasons, sometimes in joy, sometimes in sorrow, sometimes in prayer, sometimes in solitude, sometimes in the midst of the world, when there has come down almost a sensible sweetness to your taste, almost a perceptible fragrance in your thoughts. And what is this sweetness and fragrance? It is the divine presence scattering abroad, the benedictions of sweetness. That fragrance comes from 21 p.s. 20. 4. The golden censer which is in the hand of the angel before the throne. And why are these things sent to us? to win and to persuade our will freely to submit itself to his sovereignty. The throne of his sovereignty is the blessed sacrament upon the altar. The sacred heart of Jesus Christ our Lord and King is there always reigning, by the power of his love, attracting the human will in all its freedom to himself. Out of the unwilling, he creates the willing, not by constraint, but by the sweetness of his presence, which makes them voluntarily cast off their unbelief and disobedience and of their own free will submit themselves to him. Lastly, when hereafter we shall stand before him as our king and judge, the apostle Saint James declares that we shall be judged by the law of liberty. He bids us, therefore, to use it wisely. So speak ye and so do, as being to be judged by the law of liberty. In that day we shall not be judged for anything we could not do or leave undone, nor for anything we could not know we shall be judged for that which we might have known, and might have done or refrained from doing. We shall be tried by that which we have known and done, and WFE shall be compelled to lay our hand upon our mouth, and to confess that in all our life, we never did evil in thought, word, or deed, but we might have refrained from doing it, and might have done good instead, if we had had the will, that every act of evil was a free act and an irrational and immoral abuse of our will. Time forbids me now to draw out examples of this evident truth. Take any habit in which at this moment you may be entangled, such as ambition, pride, sloth, self-indulgence, jealousy, insincerity, be it what it may. Tell me whether the first acts of it were not altogether voluntary, and the second and the third, I, and the first, second and third years of its continuance asterisk. If now it has become ingrained in your character, if now you have become, and are at this time, proud, 
ambitious, slothful, jealous, insincere, so that you cry in second threat. I am fast bound in these chains of iron, how can I ever break these bonds v? Know that you have forged them for yourselves, and at the last day will have to give an account of every several and voluntary act, whereby you have willingly wrought those links. You laid them upon the anvil, and have deliberately welded them with your own hand, until by your own will you have fastened them upon yourselves. Lastly, we shall have to give an account of all the good we have left undone, and it is certain that we neglect, all day long, opportunities of doing good, of making acts of love of God and of our neighbor. In that day our Lord will say to each one of us, It was hungry, and you gave me not to eat, I was thirsty, and you gave me not to drink, I was a stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. All the day long, our life and lot are full of these opportunities, and we allow them to pass away. They are golden opportunities, like the seed time and the harvest, which, with all their treasures pass with the year and return no more. We shall have to give an account in that day of the free use we have made of all our manifold stewardship, of the gifts of nature, of the faculties of the soul, of the graces of the Holy Ghost, of the providences of God over our life, of the opportunities which have been so countless and so fertile, surpassing even our recognition, and of all the loving visitations of God, whereby He would have brought us to Himself. Remember the words you have said this morning and before you lie down will say again tonight. Remember the obedience of Jesus, when on your knees you say the prayer which he has taught us. Thy kingdom come me, let thy sovereignty reign over my will. T will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Let thy most holy, most sweet, most perfect will be done in me, and by me, and about me, in all things, and always, now and forever.